that was an example of what happened Friday night, and it was such an incredible time. It really was. You saw the passion in that video. You saw the passion of the young people, right? Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. And that was such an amazing sight to see. So I want to get into, we are in, uh, it's the second section of spiritual warfare. <laughs> not sure what week we're on. I think seven maybe. I can't remember. But this is the second section. We, le- we began last week with Heaven's Court. With, with the fact that heaven is a courtroom, and it's really important to understand that heaven is a courtroom. And when you deal with spiritual warfare, when you deal with the enemy, you must deal with him first in that court. It's much like here on earth. If you want to do anything moving forward legally, be able to do anything, you've got to have the permission of the court. Okay, there are laws that are passed that give us permission to do things, right? We have laws passed that allow us to buy land. We have laws passed. You'll you'll have to run that and put that right in in here. We we have laws passed that, that, uh, uh, that allow us to drive cars. We have laws passed that allow us to get licenses to do anything, to hunt. To do anything. We have laws that we have to abide by, right? Okay, and in those laws, it's important to understand that you abide by the laws. Right? God has laws that we have to abide by. We've read those. But, but what we began to understand last week is that all of heaven is a court. And it's not just us that have to abide by these laws. But there is an advocate and there is an accuser. Right? We talked about Revelation 12.10. There's an accuser that accuses us day and night. He travels about the earth, traveling to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. Right? And that's Satan. Satan is our accuser. Okay? And the accuser in the Greek we talked about last week was attorney. One who claims against. One who takes to court. Effectively a prosecutor, you might say. In, in today's terminology. So we have a prosecutor. We have one who, who goes before the throne and says, this person did this. They have no right to have your favor. They have no right to have the court's victory. They have no right. I'm accusing them of this. Now see, before Jesus Christ came, there was no advocate before the throne who stepped in place of that for Israel, was the high priest. The high priest, that's why Jesus Christ was also called a priest. He's a priest and a king. Right? So in this, is, is that not still not working? Okay. Um, it should be this one right here. The sound live is gone completely. Yeah. The sound, what? Live uh, is gone. On Facebook is gone. Yeah. Right, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to get working for her is the sound. By the way, all you online, if you would like to send in money for some real equipment, <laughs> then you'll be able to hear us. Of course, yeah, they can't hear that. Yeah, please text that out. Or I don't know what, the, what, what you may have to... Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
I don't know why it doesn't pick up the microphone without being plugged in. My phone does. My phone's much better, apparently. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know why it is, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to take the time. We'll have to figure it out. You could keep working with that, but is my microphone on? No. Okay. Seriously, people. Is it on now? Did I turn it on? Hello? Okay, well, that's what the problem is. Is it on now? Okay, there it is. All right. Hey, we're working now. Okay. Anyways, let, let's get back. Our mind, mind's focused on this. So in, in looking at this as a courtroom, okay, we have an accuser. And in the Old Testament, we had a high priest who stood in the gap for Israel, stood in the gap for those who sought God. Because remember, in the Old Testament, you could only go after God if you were you, you uh, went under the Jewish faith. You had to believe in the Jewish God. You couldn't just believe, you know, and and not accept the law of the Jews. Because in the Old Testament, it was under the law. There was a high priest. Turn me down just a hair. Um, in the Old Testament, there was a high priest who stood in the gap. That's why when you see problems with Israel, oftentimes there was a high priest who did not do that properly. Okay? Now, since then, praise God, we live in a day and age where we have an advocate, we have a perfect advocate who stands before us in the court and sits at the right hand of the Father. That's Jesus Christ. He came to this earth. He died on the cross for our sins. He earned the right to be our representative. So when you think of the courts of heaven, you think of heaven and you think of the Father, He is on a throne. He is on a seat of judgment. Okay? You have an accuser on one side who's relentless, very high-paid attorney, apparently. He knows what he's doing. And then on the other side, you have an even better attorney for you. Now, both have to adhere to the law of the land. Right? That's why Jesus Christ came. He did not come to circumvent the law. He came and He fulfilled the law. That's why the Father can even look at us. Because He cannot look at sin. The Father looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ, our Advocate. So when we go before the throne, don't be confused. It's not that, well, we're not under the law anymore. We don't have to adhere to the law. It's not about that because the law never changed. The law was always the law. It was brought out, in fact, the Bible says, to reveal sin. To reveal what was wrong. So the law was not done away with. The law is what God operates in the courts. However, what He looks at, because there was that perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there no longer needed to be shed blood. It was done once and for all. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And it was done. It was completed. So our lives are covered, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, our lives are covered in His blood. We are justified because of Jesus Christ and what He did when we accept Him. However, if that's all it took, then how come an accuser 
has effectiveness in the court. That's because it doesn't end there. When we, are, when we accept Jesus Christ into our hearts, and we've gone over this, but when we accept Jesus Christ into our hearts, we are justified by the blood of Christ. It doesn't mean that we immediately become sinless. Ask anybody who's saved. If they think they're sinless, maybe they need to wake up from that dream. <laughs> we are not sinless. We still have sinful flesh. In fact, the third part of salvation is receiving a glorified body, which is a body different from this sinful flesh body. But we don't get that until we're with Him. So right now, we are justified. We're sealed, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We're sealed by the, by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed eternal life with Him. But it is our spirit that is guaranteed. He does not seal our mind. And I'll give you evidence of that. Since you got saved, do you have things run through your mind that are sinful? Do you have things that run through your mind that are of temptation? Do you have things run through your mind that you struggle with? Yeah, we all do. Everybody does. That's an example and proof that our mind, which is our soul according to the Bible, who we are, it's our DNA, if you will. Who we are is not sealed by the Spirit. It's our spirit that is sealed by the Spirit. So in our body, we can sin. We can make mistakes. We can go outside of the will of God. And I don't need to, I shouldn't have to prove, you know, really push that home too hard. Because I think it's pretty obvious. We all just look at our lives and we see that we sin. So in that time after we get saved until the time we die, that's called our sanctification, in that time is where we build relationship with Jesus Christ. So as we get into this part of the lesson, it's important to understand, you have to be in agreement with your attorney. I mean, what if you were to go to court over a traffic ticket or whatever, and you did not agree with your attorney... He stood up and said something for you. You stood up and said something completely different. What do you think the judge is going to do? He's not going to listen to your attorney. I can tell you that. He listens to the source. That's why usually the attorney says, you're not getting on the stand <laughs> in a defense case. You're just going to sit there and be quiet. I'm here to be an advocate for you. That's what Jesus Christ is for us. And we also talked about last week how one of the most important things, or the most important thing that the enemy uses against us are our words. Words are important. And, and you could go listen last week, or if you, if you, want, if you want those uh, uh, verses again, please feel free to come and see me. Or listen last week, but your words carry weight. You know, James says the words, the tongue, it's, it's like a sword, it, it cuts. Right? So what we say is important. So it's important, again, to understand that there's a court. We have an advocate. We have an accuser. And what we say is evidence. Okay, it's evidence. So today, we're going to get into this a little further. If we do not see answers 
to our prayers. As we begin to pray and say, God, I, I want you. I desire you. I want to be intimate with you. But I'm having this problem here. I'm having this problem or I have this need and I'm coming before you. I'm just praying. I'm pleading. Right? I'm like Jacob just holding on to that leg. Right? I, I, like last week we talked about the, the widow who kept going to court and just finally bugged the judge to death until he gave her the verdict. Right? That, that's what we think mentally in our mind is, well, if I bug him enough, he's going to answer that prayer. But the problem is that oftentimes we're fighting a warfare here on earth at this level instead of fighting it before the court. See, we have to be in agreement with Jesus Christ. So when we pray, if we do not see answers to our prayers then something legal is resisting us in the spirit realm. Conflict must be taken care of in the court before fought on the battlefield. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? You've got to deal with things in the court before you go and deal with them on the battlefield. We're all raised to be warriors. We know ignition is called to be an army. But if we don't deal with the enemy from a legal standpoint first, then we have no authority to beat him on the battlefield. Right? It's much like, I used the example last week, of a landlord. A landlord who has a tenant that didn't pay. They want to get him out. They can't just go and kick him out. Right? There are laws that protect that person, even if they don't deserve it. There are laws that protect them. You have to go to court. You have to get the authorization first. Then you go and kick them out. And then it's easy. It's just a matter of calling the sheriff, having them come down and escort them out of the building. It's no different with the court of heaven. When you're dealing with something in your life, you need to take it to your attorney. You need to be in agreement with your attorney first. Then take it before the throne, the, the court, render that verdict, and once that verdict is rendered in your favor, then you go to the battlefield and it's no contest. There's nothing that the enemy can do. Why? Because he has to follow the law. You have authority over him in the law when it is granted you from the court. So that's why it's important to do that. Satan can only do what the court of heaven allows him to do. That's very important to understand. He is not some being that has this ultimate power to just do whatever he wants. He knows if he steps out of bounds, what will happen. Because, see, God wants every opportunity to go after Satan for your cause. But for the sake of law, he can't. For the sake of, of what is done in the court, he can't. So Satan knows that, and Satan stays within the bounds of the court. So we need to learn how to operate in the court. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19, and I want to give you an example of this because 
again, Satan does what the court allows him to do. And oftentimes we're saying, well, God did this to me. No, God didn't do that to you. And I'm going to prove that to you. 1 Samuel 19. This is, all of us remember David and Saul, right? Saul was anointed king. David was apparently a pretty good harpist. (laughs) He he was brought into the, the court of Saul and he would, when Saul would get agitated, he would play his harp and that would calm him down. I'm convinced that that's worship, and that's what called him down. So let, let's start reading at verse 9. We'll read 9 and 10. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, as he sat down in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 9 it says, Then a harmful spirit from the Lord. See, we read this and we think, Well, I thought God was a good God. Why would He do something bad to me? And then we think in our own lives of all the bad things that happen or or in other people's lives and, and say, Why did God let that happen? Why did God do that? I heard it just on the radio this morning. I heard a young person crying out, it was on the radio, crying out, why did God do this to me? It wasn't that God did that to you. But did God God decree that? Yes, He did. This is evidence of that. Did, did God purposely want Saul to go after David? No. He gave the enemy the authority to do it. It was decreed in heaven that he could do it. Now, it doesn't explain why. But the prosecution found a way to make it legal. The prosecution does that in our own lives. He finds ways of, of it being legal for him to come after us. And we're going to get into some of those ways here in a little bit, but I want you to understand, Satan can only do what the court allows him to do. So in the case of Saul, that's exactly what happened. The court allowed him to send a spirit into Saul, who in turn picked up a spear and went after David. Now at the same time, David was protected because of who he was, because of his heart for God. But understand that this is the battle in the courtroom. I want you to look at another one. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 9. And this is talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh. You've all heard this. Starting in verse 2 says this. I know a man, by the way, Paul's writing this, but... He, just so it's not confusing to you, when he says, I know a man, he's talking about himself. When, when Paul was, was met by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he was saved right then, but he did not go into ministry right away. It was 14 years later, 
plus three more years in Asia. It was really 17 years before he started his real ministry. During that time frame, during that 14 years, is what he's talking about here. He says, verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, by the way, the third heaven is where the throne of God is. You have the first heaven, which is where the birds and the air are. Okay, That's our atmosphere. Don't think in terms of height. Think in terms of dimension. Okay, So you have, you have the first heaven, which is our three-dimensional world here, plus time. You have the birds in the atmosphere. Okay, the, the universe, whatever you want to call it. What we can see. Then you have the second heaven, which is where the spirit realm is. You have the spirit realm where, where all the angels, all the demonic activity, all of that occurs in the spirit realm. That's the second heaven. In, in reality, it's still in this area. It's just different dimension, if that makes sense. The third heaven is away from that. It says that it is up. Paul was caught up, right? John in chapter 4 of Revelation was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven is the throne of God. See, and, and demonic activity does not happen at the throne of God. Why? Because it's the courtroom. It's the courtroom. It is also where when we're saved and we die, that's, that's where we go to be with Jesus. But it is the courtroom. It is where the Father's throne is. It is where our advocate is before the court for us, who is Jesus Christ. So Paul, he said in verse 2, I know a man in Jesus Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. So he's saying it was so real, he has no idea if he physically went there or if just his spirit went there. So it was so real and accurate that this was all the same to him. Okay? Verse 3, And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. He repeated that again. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, that man that went up to the third heaven. But on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for... I would be speaking the truth. And by the way, Paul has a real way of kind of, he'd be a great car salesman. Because he, sometimes it seems like he talks in circles a little bit, that, that, that double talk. That's not what this is. He's trying to lay out that he is boasting in Christ and what Christ did in his life and not boasting in his ability to do that himself. Okay? It just... Maybe the way they talked back then. I don't know. But, but read through that. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited... By the, by the way, I want to point one real quick thing out. It's so off topic, but i got to point it out. I can't go past it without it. Verse 4. And he heard the things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Don't think for a second that Revelation is complete. This is proof of it right here. See, revelation given to men is not complete. It's just all in agreement. Okay? The Bible says revelation is not complete. Why? Here's an example right here. Revelation was given to Paul that he could not write down. 
It was given directly to him. It was something for his benefit. It was literal words that that were given for him that he couldn't write down. So we don't have it in the Word of God. I'll give you another example. The seven thunders in Revelation. As John's up there and he's writing all this down, the seven thunders speak. And the angel says, don't write that down. You can't write that down because that is for another day. Why? He didn't want the enemy to know. He didn't want the enemy to know what was going to happen in those times or what happened in Paul here. So, so don't be confused. And because I know a lot of people, I grew up this way, saying, well, there is nothing more that God would ever say to me except these exact words that are in His Word. And that is so false. That is so untrue. Because when we develop a relationship with Jesus Christ, He speaks just like a friend does. He speaks to us one-on-one. That's the only way you could develop that relationship. You can't develop that relationship by reading about Him. You have to experience Him. And that comes through communication. That experience comes through being together, talking together, and not just you talking to Him. He speaks back to you. And I say this because this was an important thing in my life an important point that I had to get over when I began to understand the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit actually speaks, that He actually wants to speak to me, that Jesus wants a relationship that is two ways with me. Now I will say this, and this is really important to understand. The Holy Spirit will never Speak something that is out of line with the Word of God. Because, see, His character is perfect. And His character will always be in perfect perfect similarity, perfect exactness to the Word of God. So if you're receiving a Word that's different than the Word of God, you know how to test that Spirit. But don't be afraid of Jesus wanting to speak to you. He wants to speak to all of you. And and I'll even say this. He's been speaking to all of you. If you've accepted him into your heart, he speaks to you. You may not recognize it. You may not understand it. You may not see it as that. But I'm here to tell you I went through that process. And that's what the Bible talks about when it says, My sheep know my voice. When we become His sheep, we are not His sheep when we accept Him into our heart. Don't be confused. We are His sheep when we follow Him. Because, see, a sheep follows. And I know many Christians that don't follow. We're sheep when we follow Him. We know His voice when we follow Him. When you seek Him in intimacy, you learn His voice. So, again, I didn't, want, didn't mean to get sidetracked on that, but it's important to understand that. So, continuing on, he gave, uh, middle of verse 7, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. <clears throat> Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I want you to understand that Satan was allowed to here do something to Paul. In the third heaven, Paul hears God's word that he could not write down. We talked about before, but but he was given a messenger. I, I would think it would be really easy if I were to go spend time in heaven. And Paul doesn't say how long he was there. Paul doesn't say how many times he was there. But if I got to physically, to where I couldn't tell if it was physical or not, you know, it, it was clearly not a dream, not a vision, but I was there in heaven with God, talking with Him, walking with Christ, doing all these things, it would be really easy to be boastful here on earth. It would be really easy to become conceited here on earth. God loved me so much, He did that for me. He brought me up there. Right? You, you actually hear people that, that do that. Well, in this case, the Lord knew He sent a messenger. And by the way, the word there for messenger is agalos. It means a messenger or especially an angel. Okay, this was not a good angel. This was a demonic spirit that Paul tried to cast off. It was a biting spirit, the, spirit, the, the word says. This biting spirit that Paul could not get rid of. He prayed three times, Father, get rid of this, please. It's bugging me. And he said, no, my grace is sufficient. Why did he send that? God didn't just decide to send that. It was because it was decided in the court that Paul had pride over something. He had an accuser trying to find anything that he could on Paul. And he went before the court and he said, You have made him proud. Or even in the motive of it, he will become proud because of what you're doing with him. So see, Satan had the right. He had the verdict to go after Paul in that way. So don't think God does anything in your life to hurt you. God simply deals with the evidence that's in front of him. And it's what the accuser accuses, and in our case now the advocate that fights for us. I want you to turn to Luke 22. One more example of this is Peter. Verse 31 and 32 say this, Simon, Simon, this is Jesus talking to Peter right before he, he uh, denied Christ the three times. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, that word demanded there is atomai, and it means to demand literally for trial. That's what the Greek word means. He demanded him for trial. So the enemy saw what Jesus wanted to do, or what the Father wanted to do through Peter, in beginning, literally beginning the church, beginning the bride of Christ. And he saw in Peter's life reason that he could accuse. 
So what the scripture is saying here is that the accuser went before the court and he said, I demand to have Peter on trial. I demand to be able to sift him like wheat. What does that mean? That means I demand to have him put on the stand so that I can go after him and reveal the very things in him that are not of you. You think Peter's such a great guy, and I see all these other things in him. I demand to put him on the stand. See, what does Jesus do? He said, verse 32, I have prayed for you. See, even when he was on earth, he interceded for Peter. He knew that he could go before the court and not just go to dad. See, he had to pray and go before the court for Peter. He said, I have gone before the court for you that your faith may not fail. He couldn't stop it from happening. You understand that? That's a huge point. He could not stop that from happening because, and we won't, but if you read on, Peter denied Christ three times. It happened. Satan got in there and he got to sift him. And you saw the result of that was Peter denied him three times. Why? It was because of fear. It was that very spirit that is one of the most powerful spirits that are against, that's against us. The spirit of fear. So the spirit of fear was in Peter, caught a hold of Peter. He was sifted on the throne before the court, and he was found wanting. Right? He denied Christ three times. But what did Jesus do as an advocate? He went before the court and he said, save his faith. Why? Because he's one of mine. He's one of mine, and he may say he doesn't believe, but I know his heart. He does believe. And right now, if, 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 you, if you read that very next verse, it says, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's saying, I love you, I believe you, I know you're the Messiah. I stand in agreement with you of who you are. So Jesus could go before the court and say, we have two witnesses. He believes deep in his heart. He may have this spirit of fear. He may have this point that, is, that, that the devil can exploit. But he loves me. And so he asked for his faith not to fail. And that's exactly what happened. We know that he denied Christ three times. But that's not, what, that's not the last thing you hear about Peter. Right? In fact, he became the most passionate, fervent leader of the church. I always love the picture of Peter when Christ comes and appears after being resurrected and he's standing on the shore and he's cooking a little breakfast for the guys. And they're a hundred yards off in the boat. And they say, is that you, Lord? Yeah, it's me. Peter just, boom, dives in. Now, if he'd have thought about that, he'd have said, Lord, let me walk on water again so I don't get wet. <laughs> but I guess he learned his lesson the first time, right? But he dove in. He had to be with him right then. He didn't want to wait 
the few minutes that it would take to paddle in. He was passionate. See, that's what Jesus interceded with. His heart. His heart was after God. You look at David. It says in the Word of God, and, 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 and in Hebrews, I believe, chapter 11, where it, where it says that he had a heart after God. His faith was strong because he loved the Lord. Does that mean he didn't sin? Good night. No. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. I, I, I would say most of us have, have not done things that David did in, many times in his life. So it wasn't that he was some perfect guy. But see, the priest could go before the, the court of heaven and say, His heart is for you, God. He loves you. Yes, the enemy gets a hold of him. And there's so many circumstances and so many consequences to that. But he loves you. I plead for him before your court. That's what Samuel did. Samuel was the high priest at the time. Jesus is our high priest. But you know what's interesting? And this is something God just laid on my heart. We're also called priests ourselves. So we can go in intercession for each other. Because we have an advocate before the throne. It's kind of like having a really good attorney just as part of your staff. And then you have a friend that gets in trouble and you say, you know what? Let me help you out. I, I have a, I have a we, we have an attorney on, on, uh, on staff and let me get you with him. So we intercede, right? We may talk to that attorney for them. And I know I'm, I'm kind of laying this out in a little bit crazy terms because I, I really want to get it through your mind to look at the throne of God as a court. But we're to intercede for each other as well. So we've looked at the fact that Satan has the right to do all of these things. How does Satan get that right to demand to come after us? How can he do that? How does he have the right to do that? To come after us? Sin puts us out of fellowship with Jesus Christ, who is our attorney. I talked about it last week. If, the, if you have a courtroom appearance here on earth, if we have a courtroom appearance, we have an attorney there waiting for us, and we don't show up, what do you think happens? That Hopefully, the best you can hope for is a continuance, because no verdict is going to be given, except guilty. There are times that if you don't show up, that judge has no other choice because there's only one side of, of evidence presented to him. There's, he has no other choice than to render verdict on their, their behalf. See, it's the same with us. When we fall out of agreement with Jesus Christ, when we fall out of agreement and, and communion with Him in relationship, He cannot go before the throne for us. Why? Because we, it's literally we can't talk to Him we can't share with Him what we're thinking because we have fallen out of relationship due to sin. And that's example again why when we get saved, it doesn't just erase all of our future sin. It does in the Father's eyes. 
but it doesn't in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ, our attorney. We have to have agreement with Him. We have to have anything that comes between us has to be dealt with. And sin is what comes between us and Jesus Christ. There are three things Satan uses to accuse us before the court of heaven. When he goes before the court, he uses three things to accuse us with. I want you to write these down. Number one, he uses our own sin. Our own sin. Turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verse 23 says this, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he, being man, delights in his ways. So in other words, the Lord shows us the path when we delight in his ways. When we come in agreement with Jesus Christ, in agreement with what He wants for our lives, when we're in agreement with Him, then, he, then, then the Lord establishes our ways, our steps. It's not in the dark. We, we, we can go in confidence and step in confidence. Turn over to Psalm 139. A lot of you know this, this psalm. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. See, now, remember this Old Testament, but the concept's the same. David had to be in agreement with the Lord through the high priest. He had to be in agreement. So he said, if there's something I'm not aware of, if there's something I don't know that I'm doing that, that is bringing, coming between me and you, Father, show me. Because I need that relationship to be pure. This is a prayer I want to suggest that we all pray every day. I pray this prayer every day. It falls on my heart constantly. Lord, I don't want to miss anything that would give the enemy any authority to come between you and I. Because I want my path to be straight. I want what you want for me on this earth. I trust you, and I don't want anything to come between me and my best friend. So show me. If there's something that I don't see, show me. And oftentimes that's how sin starts. Is it something we didn't realize? Something we didn't recognize? But if we pray for Him to show that He's faithful and just to do that, and He's faithful and just to forgive us of it, so you can have that pure relationship between you and Jesus Christ. We may sin, and we, we have a, a fleshly body that sins, and that we'll always deal with that. But we can be in fellowship with Jesus, who in turn allows us to be in fellowship with God. Jesus said, I am in God and He is in me. And He said, you are in me and I am in you. So what does that mean? That means through Jesus Christ we are in God. We have a relationship with the Father. See, our relationship isn't just with Jesus Christ. 
In fact, it's through Jesus Christ, but our relationship is with the Father. So if we come out of line in our relationship with Jesus Christ because of sin, then it breaks that fellowship with the Father. It doesn't take away our salvation because we're justified, we're cleansed, we're sealed. But there are consequences to sin. I mean, that's obvious. I, I don't even need to go into that. There are consequences to sin. Number two, so number one was our own sin. Number two, and this one's a little bit tougher to understand, but I want to show it to you in the Word. Number two is the sin of our fathers. This is known widely as generational curses. Okay, we've all heard that term. What does that mean? Generational curse. Wait a second, I, I didn't do that. Why, why am I having to deal with the sin of somebody five generations back? I wasn't even born yet. That has nothing to do with me. Don't be deceived. It has everything to do with you. And I'll show you. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. We have a couple examples here. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, says this. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I visit the iniquity of your fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now what it means by visiting, it means applying. See, I apply the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. See, he didn't even say to the next generation. He said to the third and fourth generation. Turn to Joshua chapter 6. But this third and fourth generation, I, I want to submit two things though. Because don't, don't assume that it stops at the fourth generation. I'm going to give you an example here that is many, many generations. Okay, but bottom line, we know that sin has been passed down through every generation because of Adam. See, that curse of Adam was not broken until Jesus Christ earned that on the cross. Now, Jesus has not even claimed that yet. He's paid for it, but He hasn't claimed it yet. He'll come back and claim it after the tribulation when He comes in victory. But He paid for that, but that sin has been passed down from Adam. However many generations that's been. Okay, but I want to read an example in the Word of God of... Multiple, multiple generations. Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. And this has always been really amazing to me. Joshua just was, he's one of my favorite Bible characters. Verse 26, they, they had just finished taking over Jericho. The walls fell, the city was demolished, they killed everybody except Rahab and her family. And then Joshua says this, Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, and this is, when he says on them, this is everybody listening, and it was laid on the city of Jericho. He said, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. Cursed be the man. At the cost of his firstborn, 
shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So Joshua, who was righteous before God, laid a curse on that ground. Notice it wasn't a curse on people. It wasn't a curse on all future generations that live in this land. It was a curse on the land itself. The land that God leveled. Said God leveled that. So there will be a cost to anybody rebuilding that. And that cost is going to be your firstborn. When you lay its foundation, your firstborn son, I want you to turn now to 1 Kings chapter 16. Either somebody didn't hear the curse, or they didn't believe the curse. Because they went ahead and rebuilt Jericho. Verse 34 says this, In his days, Hale of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation, and what? At the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now this is fascinating to me, because this was a long time later. So when they rebuilt Jericho, it was it was came true the very curse that Joshua had spoken. Right? He he had laid this curse and it cost this man his firstborn and his firstborn son. Exactly what the curse said. So you would think it's over, right? You would think it's finished. The ground was cursed and now payment was made. Because there was what, what it went against it was done, and now the payment's been made. Those, the curse been fulfilled, right? No. This is why we need to understand generational curses are strong. They, have, they, they stay and they hold until what? Until they're broken. Until they're taken away. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 15. But this was when Elisha, who was, was um, uh, the, the, whatever you call it, he, he was Elijah's prophet in training. <laughs> right? And as soon as Elijah went away, there was a testing on Elisha. And I'm not going to read the testing, but he passed the testing. And it happens to be right next to Jericho. He parts the waters, just like Moses did. And the people from Jericho, remember, Jericho's been rebuilt now. The people from Jericho, and this has been well over 400 years later. As a matter of fact, I, I've, seen, I've seen counts as low as 420 years, counts as high as 650 years. It's been a long time. Okay, it's been a long time since the city has been rebuilt. Since, since it was torn down in the first place and Joshua laid that curse down. So they see Elisha, they see that he's proven to be a prophet, and they send out 50 guys and say, oh, help us, help us. And that's kind of the scene that's going on here. Let's start at verse 15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, being Elisha opposite of them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him, and they said to him, behold, now... 
There are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up. They're, they're thinking Elijah is still, still alive here. And cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. Don't worry, you're not going to find him anyways. Don't bother sending the 50 people. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. I, I think that word shame there is more that he was exasperated. He said, fine, if you want to waste the time, go ahead, go look for him. They sent there for 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. They were looking for Elijah, and he was caught up. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elijah, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant. Okay, so now they saw what Elijah, Elisha had done. That he is now the prophet. They could not find Elijah. Elisha is now the man. So they, they, they begin to explain their situation to him. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant. And my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. In other words, it looks so good. It's so beautiful here. It's so awesome here. But something's wrong with the water. It's bitter. And the land, we, we try to grow crops and, and it won't yield fruit. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. And from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. See, the curse had not ended. The curse was of the firstborn and the first son. If you go back, it doesn't say it here, but if you go back in history and you, you research the history of Jericho, and, it, and it was, it was, this was about, if I recall correctly, about 600 B.C., right around there. Something like that. You can research the history of this. And what was happening is they would have many babies that would die. And they didn't understand it. You know, here they have this beautiful city and they have an extraordinary count of miscarriages or of those who die at a young age. And see, what happened after this, if you keep reading, it says, so the water has been healed to this day, to the day of writing this, the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. And by the way, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I was remembering that wrong. This was about 850 B.C., right around there. So once he healed it, it's been healed. What was healed? They start having babies again. See, it was the land that was accursed, and what had to be dealt with was that generational curse. Now, I'm not going to get into what he did, but what he did by throwing the salt in there was an example of going before the courts and asking forgiveness for what that was, asking forgiveness for the curse that was laid in that bloodline. In, in this case, that curse that was laid on that land. Okay? So we have our own sin keeps us from 
fellowship. We have the sin of our fathers, which is generational curses. And then we have our motives. And I'm not going to get into this one because we're out of time. And this one's going to take a bit. We'll start with this one next week. But our motives. Our motives are so important. When you're going after God, what is your motivation? When you go to Him in prayer, when you develop a relationship with Him, is so you can have prosperity? So you can have an easier life? So you could be healed of something? What's your motivation? Is it so you could receive something? And, and by the way, I want to be clear, none of those things are wrong. But they can't be your motivation. If my motivation to go before Him is that I want an easier life, then that becomes between us. That motivation is the very thing that I keep my eyes on. See, my eyes have to be on Jesus Christ. And when our eyes are on Him, He can favor us with all those things. And, and it's, it's fine to pray for that favor. In fact, it's necessary to pray for that favor. It's necessary to pray for those healings. But it can't be your motivation. Because the enemy will use that against you. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you, Lord. And I just pray as we continue to understand your courts and how to operate within your courts. It is all for the purpose of intimacy with your Son, of intimacy with Jesus Christ and you through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you speak to our hearts this morning, Lord. Help us to put into priority that relationship that we seek with you. We love you so much, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right.